0: Hello, this is Pastor Gordon Runyon from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tucumcari, New Mexico. I'm pleased to present to you this recording of a session at our Freedom Conference 2016. Our featured speaker was Mr. Bojidar Marinov. And may you be richly blessed as you listen. Amen. Well... Howdy y'all oh well this is not Texas, but you know what i 'm saying, right <laughs> all right um, and you will have to forgive me i I have not been trained in speaking from pulpit, and i don 't like speaking speaking from a pulpit but i i'll i 'll try, I'll try to do my best and uh, what I want to do today and tomorrow and and uh hopefully on sunday is uh Really, to challenge your thinking. You know, I, I, I flatter myself of, of being the the outsider that can bring, you know, that can open your eyes. You know, that's that's what uh, that's what I believe I can do. Although I may be wrong. So if I'm wrong, you know, feel free to get some eggs tomorrow or, or tomatoes and just throw them at me. Okay, I'm okay with that. Don't shoot at me, but <laughs> you can throw eggs. So. And. Uh, <clears throat> But the problem of what I see here in America today, and I've been living in America for the last 10 years, although going back to Bulgaria regularly to make sure that the mission is, is working and, and you know to evangelize, to work with different libertarian organizations in Bulgaria, with homeschoolers. We're going, this, this next week, uh, my wife and I are going back to Bulgaria, and we're going to be working with homeschoolers there and with churches, and we have missions among uh, the gypsy minority in Bulgaria. And uh, you probably don't know what the gypsy minority means, <laughs> but that is the longest surviving pagan civilization in Europe. And when I say pagan, you have no idea here in America what pagan means. I mean, they have not changed their ways of thinking since 2,000 years ago. And uh, so we're working with these people. We've got some success there. So. Uh, uh, in, um, but living in America for the last 10 years, uh, I, can, I can pretty much say that I'm both an American and an Eastern European. And I can see a lot of stuff that sometimes I, I, I lose my patience when, when my fellow Americans can't see them. I have to tell them, okay, can't you see that the way we're doing things is going to get us exactly where Eastern Europe was? years ago. And yet, even people who love liberty sometimes are so set in their ways and so set in the, in the common political uh, grid that we have today in America that they don't want to change. Because that's the way we have always done it. We have voted Republican. We have respected authority. You know, and our, our schools are different. And, and so on, and so on. And uh, you got to pay your taxes because, you know, you got to give Caesar uh, what Caesar's, not thinking that who does Caesar belong to in the first place, and so on, and so on. <clears throat> what I'm going to present to you today and tomorrow is the biblical case for rebellion. I will try to present it to you. The biblical case for rebellion. And not just the biblical case for rebellion, but the biblical mandate to rebellion. It's not just that we can rebel against an unjust, pagan, civil authority. We don't have that in the United States today, do we? but that we're obligated, not only when that authority is forcing us to do, to commit sin, no. But when that authority is committing sin and injustice itself. Okay. And I want to start today with speaking about Apostle Paul, the rebel. Okay. But I want to start a little bit further back and that is when i was a kid i got to tell you i'm really excited about being here in this beautiful geographical area of the world but you wouldn't guess why when i was a kid i told a friend of mine that when i grew up and i would grow up i would i would live in texas <laughs> and i will actually go to visit those areas in texas and new mexico south of the red river I, for some reason, I liked, I liked it, <clears throat> and uh, i got to tell you why, because uh, there's a German author of Western books, he's not popular in the United States, he's very popular in Europe, his name is Carl May, and he wrote a lot about the West, you know, the frontier, he wrote back in the 19th century, and, and the funny thing is, he never went west of Mississippi River, but he knew so much about the areas around that now that I live in these areas around here and I'm reading his books again, it is as if he lived here. He obviously read a lot of books, a lot of, he, he just knew the area. And he's got some really nice stories and he was an interesting thing. He was a Protestant Christian and he loved America, even though he didn't live in America. He lived in Germany. He traveled around the world a lot. But uh, he, and, and I love that author, and I thought one day I'm going to live there. One thing about the guy is that he loved America so much because he saw in America a Christian ideal that he couldn't see in Europe. And uh, what he saw, he had a vision of a Christian nation himself, of a Christian society, a Christian society where the individual the self-governing individual, the free enterprising individual, creates a world of freedom. And that's where he lives. Without a government on his head, without any lords or kings. And he lived at that time in the Kingdom of Saxony. Germany was still divided. It was not a united country. He lived in the country in, in the Kingdom of Saxony. And he saw in Germany at the time Anywhere you go, you would have some, some small, petty feudal overlord. He would, he, he, would, uh, he would have power over you to control you and go anywhere you want, and, and to control you and do anything they want. And in fact, that was the time in the 19th century where actually torture was still legal in Germany. And he looked at America, and he was a Christian. And he, he saw in America uh, exactly that ideal that he believed in, a Christian land of self-governing individuals. And you can see this through his books everywhere. Now, he, he, he wrote against, a, 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 I mean, it was not an ideal nation. Uh, there were a lot of sins in America at the time. He wrote against those sins. He wrote against slavery. He wrote against, um, and slavery was not just slavery of, of, of the blacks. It was slavery of the Chinese workers in America. It was slavery of many others. He wrote, in fact, in defense of, um, of the American Indians, you know, what the government did on the Amer- uh, uh, to the American Indians. You know, we passed by the Palo Duro Canyon, <clears throat> and we know what the Federal Cavalry did to the Comanches there. Uh, people that at the time had become already peaceful enough to not be a threat to anybody. But because our federal government can't stand free people, they massacred them in the Palo Duro Canyon. But anyway, I was really influenced by this. By this imperfect land but very close to his ideal and at the time I wasn't even a Christian. I didn't even believe in Christianity. I was a Marxist. My parents were Marxists and I was brought up a Marxist. I didn't even believe in that but I told my friend I'm gonna live in Texas one day. The problem is living in a communist country. Now if you live in New Mexico you know, the dream of living in Texas is not a big deal. But living in a communist country with closed borders, and you can't cross the border to go anywhere you want, obviously, you know, if, if you were an older person, <clears throat> that would be dangerous for you. As a kid, that's okay, you know. Yeah, dreams. But if I was like 18, 19, 20 years of age, that could, that could have landed me, you know, in some cell in the local police department. But anyway, I remember that when I told a friend of mine, and in fact, five years ago, he reminded that to me. He said, I remember that, you told me. <laughs> and you live in Texas now. The main point I saw at the time in, in May's works was unheard of in a communist country. That was not only a land of self-governing, free individuals. It was a land of self-governing, free individuals who had the right. And not only the right, but they believed it was their God-given duty to rebel against any government that violated their rights or the rights of anybody. We're not talking just about individuals who responded to somebody trying to attack them we're talking about individuals that told the government even if I'm okay but I see you doing injustice the next thing you'll see is you'll be on the wrong side of my gun this is this is in in Eastern Europe that was unheard of we lived in a land where rebelling against the government was no no speaking of the government criticizing the government. No, 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 making jokes about the government could land you in jail. And here I was reading about a country where rebelling against the government was enshrined in the constitution of the land. It was enshrined the founding document of that nation. That people have the right to throw off any rule that does not agree with a higher justice. A justice that is higher than any government, higher than any individual, however powerful he is. Justice that comes directly from God. Now everything at the time that I knew about America confirmed that. You know, the Declaration, the the, the Revolution, the multiple cases in American history that some, some of them many people don't even know about, when Americans actually rebelled against their governments, local and central governments, All these cases, everything I knew at the time, I I, I was consuming American history. And everything I was reading was individuals, not groups, not competing clans, not competing governments, but individuals fighting against the government. Everything confirmed it. I I, I read everything I could do. And uh, and I remember when the Waco siege came, uh, you know, and and we, we got the news about the Waco siege, everybody around me was thinking... See how wild Americans are? And I was thinking, man, this is great. <clears throat> they actually have people who think that they that, that, that actually shoot government agents if they come to take their guns. I mean, how cool is that? <clears throat> my, my thought was, this is what I believe a nation should be. Untamed. Unsubdued and not allowing any government agent to come and tell them how they should live. All the Hollywood movies at the time, in the 80's. Remember the Hollywood movies of the 80's? I gotta tell you, you probably remember because you could go to the theater to see them. I remember them because we had to smuggle them into the country to see them. All these Hollywood movies, remember those movies where you see an individual who stands against the system? Like most of those movies back in, back in Reagan's America were like that. You have an individual, a private individual, who stands against the government, who stands against the system, and defeats it. Not just stands against it and being a tragical hero who dies but accomplishes nothing, but somebody who stands against the system and defeats it. All these movies were praising the rebellious individual who in the name of justice would take arms and defeat the government in one way or another. The rebellious individual who has the moral courage, who has the the conviction to stand for his rights and for his beliefs. Even those movies that, that featured government agents at the time that featured good government agents, those good government agents were within the system and yet they had to rebel against the system in one way or another to protect justice. Movie after movie after movie, whether it's whether the blockbusters or, or, or just blow uh, you know, cash movies, most of them were this way. You did not have statist movies back in those days, socialist movies. For some reason, Hollywood at the time was ahead of the church in terms of protecting liberty. Think about it. <clears throat> in fact, I would say the church led the way to, to what we have today, but that's another issue. <clears throat> I mean, in Eastern Europe, we just watched those movies. We were excited about them, but those movies for us were, that <laughs> can't happen here. I mean, look at this. Ragged individuals. That are actually successful against the government. Because in Europe, if you had a movie about rugged individuals who fought against the government, those were either bad characters or tragic characters. They were either the antagonists, the people that, that nobody wants to associate with, and, or they were people that just failed. And at the end, the government won. Not so with the American movies. In Europe, such a rugged individual was considered antisocial, even in Western Europe. Usually, such a rugged individual would have some mental problem or some moral problem. You know John Wayne's characters. I mean think about all the John Wayne's characters, right? You think, "Yeah, that's a true American." Now John Wayne's characters in Europe would be considered mentally ill. The collective, the state in Europe always won. Not in America. Not in Hollywood at the time. The principle of disrespect to authority at the time was praised as an expression of the American character, even by Hollywood. And I got to tell you who they took it from. They took it from the church a hundred years earlier. This principle of disrespect to authority was freed, redeemed of its negative connotations that it has in other places in the world. It was lifted up to the level of righteous philosophy, righteous psychology, and righteous policy. Americans traditionally disrespected authority. Why? Because any authority that wanted to be respected had to earn that right to be respected. Because any authority had to stay within its rat's hole and come out only when it's called or needed. Like your firefighters. Not patrol the streets to catch you for doing something wrong. So when I first came in 2000, this is what I expected to see in my first trip to the States. Guess what? I didn't. I wanted to meet the bald eagle. What I met was an ornamental hen. Whatever Americans were in in the 1980s. They were not in year 2000. Maybe they were not in the 1980s either. I wasn't here. I just watched Hollywood movies. <clears throat> in 2000, Americans obeyed their government to the minutest details, whether it was the IRS, or the local cops, or business regulations, federal and state, or even the whims of the local school principals for crying out loud. Ever thought of the injustice of school districts being a taxing authority? What church today in America speaks against it? I mean, open your Bible. What do we pay taxes for? The Bible says well, we pay taxes for apprehending criminals and taking them to court. So are the public schools a law enforcement agency that we need to pay taxes for them? And they were taxing authority to themselves? Ever thought of that? And Americans just let it go, yeah, that's, that's the way it is. That's the way it's supposed to be. That nation that the heroic movies of the 1980s depicted was gone. Maybe it was never there, I don't know. But it was gone in, in 2000. Well, forget about those movies. The spirit of 1776 was gone in 2000 when I came here. The black regiment was gone. Ever heard of the black regiment? For those who don't know, those were the special forces of the American Revolution, the commandos of the American Revolution, the church ministers. In fact, uh, the British, the royal intelligence in the colonies believed that they were responsible for the victory of the revolution, not the troops. But those church ministers that preach those sermons of rebellion against an unjust authority. John Witherspoon. And everybody like him. The black regiment was gone. You know, um, America today has no supply of such pastors. I mean, today what we have is, in most places, is celebrity hirelings. Our pulpits today in this country are manned by celebrity hirelings that are rather comfortable with every single transgression of the government, and they never preach against it. They have a theology to defend it, they have a theology to justify it, and they never preach against the government, and they never preach the sermons that the black regiment preached back in the 1760s and the 1770s, those sermons that won. America as it is as she is today What we hear from the American pulpits today instead of righteous rebellion against unjust unrighteous wicked authority We hear a concept that in the days of the early colonists was Detested and rejected and that concept is respect to authority Now there is a place for respect to authority children in the home, church members to their elders, and so on. But respect to authority as a general notion, that means anybody who stands up there and claims I'm an authority, that thing Americans rejected from the very beginning. That's why they rebelled. If you read sermons of the days of the early colonists, you will see that they refused to respect any authority which couldn't prove itself worth, worthy of respect. <clears throat> but today, we submit to every single wham of every single government agent out there, and the problem is we teach our kids to do so. <clears throat> I even saw, recently, a Christian author praising that police officer who dragged a teenage girl across the floor. I mean. I don't care what the girl was. This is a teenage girl, whatever she did, you're not dragging a girl by the hair on the floor and we have a police officer dragging that girl and a Christian author praised that police officer. Why? Because the girl disrespected authority. Well, my thoughts were when I read that, uh, well, what do you say now that the highest authority in the land demands that we let men in your girl's bathroom? Well, how is that respect to authority working for you right now? Because that same cop who dragged that girl tomorrow will strip your girl and force her to go into that bathroom with men in it. And what are you going to say then? It didn't work for us in Eastern Europe, that respect to authority. We were respecting authority for a little too long. I mean, our fathers and grandfathers We're respecting authority for a generation. And eventually we, their sons, had to rebel. If our fathers and grandfathers in Bulgaria were like your fathers and grandfathers in America, we wouldn't have to rebel. 1989 wouldn't happen in Europe. The Berlin Wall wouldn't be there. The Gulags wouldn't be there. Solzhenitsyn, when he talked about Russia, and he said the only reason, the only reason the communist one in Russia is not because they had the numbers, not because they had the guns, not because they had a superior ideology, but because most Russians couldn't imagine rebelling against the government. So when the KGB agents would come to to somebody's home, everybody else was silent. And what he said, there were like only a hundred thousand of them in a nation of 120 million. All it would have taken is for several of those families to take up their arms and shoot against those government agents. And they didn't. Because they respected authority. All this wouldn't have happened. If, my fa- if, 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 if the grandfathers and the fathers of my generation in Eastern Europe did not respect authority. And let me drop the bomb here for those who have the ears to hear. The modern generation of Americans, and I'm talking to y'all here, is just as respectful to authority as the fathers and the grandfathers of my generation in Eastern Europe. You're setting the stage for your kids to have to rebel. And I've been through it, and it's not fun. Yes, you heard me. It's not Obama's fault. He's got sins sense of his own. I know if he doesn't repent, when he, where he's going to end up. It's not the federal government's fault. It's not the Democrats' fault, not even the Republicans' fault. The real problem we have with our country today, and I can tell you as an outsider and an insider at the same time, is that we have a generation that respects authority way more than what history tells us and the Bible tells us. The question of course is, doesn't the Bible tell us to respect authority? After all, when you go to Paul's words in Romans 13, can I have a Bible? Because I forgot my Bible. I have it on my computer, but I cannot pull it pull it up now. (laughs) The verse that is usually used today to justify this Concept of respect to authority is Romans 13. And that verse is one of the most misused and abused verses from American pulpits today. The other one is being John 3:16 through 17. You know, but we're gonna talk about this some other time. Romans 13 it says let every soul be subject unto the higher powers for there is no power but of God the powers that be are ordained of God whoever therefore resisted the power resisted the ordinance of God and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation for rulers are not a terror to good works but to the evil keep this in mind keep in mind that your local cops by law have power over you even if you did not commit any evil. Think if this verse supports that interpretation, Okay. Rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. And we will talk tomorrow about how some of our modern civil government institutions have appeared. Let me tell you this, they are not in the Bible. And they're not in the Constitution. What we take today for granted, our forefathers would have considered idolatry and wickedness and would have rebelled against it. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Will thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee, for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth the sword not in vain, only if you do evil. Okay. For he is a minister of God, a revenger to wrath upon him that doth evil. Okay. That verse is taken, these verses are taken actually, to mean that Paul was justifying obedience to any kind of government. After all, Paul was talking about the Roman government, right? No, Paul is not talking about the Roman government. He doesn't even mention Rome here. He doesn't mention the emperor. He doesn't mention Caesar. He doesn't mention any government. He uses a general word there. That is false, but the explanation is, interpretation is, Paul was living in the times of one of the weakest, uh, weakest, wickedest, <laughs> wickedest pagan government, and he was and he was basically telling people, obey any kind of government, because all kinds of governments are uh, uh, ordained by God so and also we have this interpretation. Jesus and Paul never preached and never advocated any rebellion against the Roman Empire. All they advocated is you know uh, redemption of individuals, salvation of individuals, and they just said. Leave the government alone. Many claim Jesus wasn't a social reformer, neither was Paul. In fact, they call for total obedience to the government. Right? There are even some today that say that we can't even impose moral rules on the government. We can't even ask the government to abide by any moral rules, because there is some kind of natural law that the government must abide by, but the Bible has no rules for the civil government. This interpretation, this approach to Paul's words in Romans 13, is pretty shallow. It misses a very important fact about Paul's times. Paul's philosophy about civil government sounds normal and natural only to our modern ears. Because we've been trained and conditioned by centuries of Christendom. We have lived in the shadow of Christendom, especially here in America. And then we take it for granted that, yes, the government is supposed to be a minister. And by the way, what does a minister mean? A servant of God. And he repeats it twice. A servant of God. He is a servant of God. It is true that even modern non-Christians agree that the government is supposed to be a servant. And of course, if you ask government employees, what are you, what do they say? We're public what? Servants. It is an accepted wisdom that government employees should be servants today. So we look at what Paul was saying there, and we think, yeah, everybody believes that anyway. So Paul was basically saying nothing new. Paul was not saying anything revolutionary. Paul was not saying anything that would challenge the Roman government. But in the context of the times, and against the official philosophy of the government of the Roman Empire... Paul was not only not endorsing the civil government of the day, he was actually issuing a full-scale ideological challenge against the very tenets of the Roman state. Paul was not endorsing the Roman government. He was telling the Roman government, this is what you need to be, and you're not. No other political theorist before him has done that to a pagan government. You do not see anything like this before Paul. Paul was issuing a revolutionary statement. What I'm talking about is about Paul's words in Romans 13, 4. For he is a servant to, of God to you. Normal and natural for the modern mind only. But to the minds of the ancients, it was a completely revolutionary statement. It was sedition. It challenged the reigning philosophy of government. It paved the way for the future Christians to teach and preach a new concept of government. It was a rebellion, but it was not a shallow rebellion of just killing government employees. It was a rebellion much greater than that. It was a rebellion of killing the very concept of pagan government, the very concept that they had today. <clears throat> now, that, that a ruler would do the will of gods was not a new concept. I mean, we see it in Babylon, Persia, uh, and uh, in, in the time of Daniel, we see the uh, King Darius basically declaring that he was doing the will of the gods. He wouldn't say he was a servant of God, but he would say he was doing the will of the gods. You know, uh, Nebuchadnezzar also in the times of Daniel would declare that he would do the will of God and so on. <clears throat> but in, the, in, in those days, the state was not, the government was not a minister. And in those days, the government was like a link in the chain of being between the gods and the man. You want to reach to the gods, you got to go through the emperor. Because the emperor is their representative. Yeah, they had priests, but eventually everybody in the society had to obey the emperor and in fact had to worship the emperor. They had to pay homage to the emperor. They had to sacrifice before his statue. Why? Because it was the emperor through whom people could learn the will of God. There was no individual access to God. If you don't obey the state, if you don't obey the government, the gods are against you. Period. The ancient kings considered themselves to be mediators between men and gods. And they were responsible for pe- keeping both men and gods under their control. Remember what Pharaoh said? Who is Jehovah? I don't know about such a god, he's not registered. In my department of religion, I never gave my permission to build a temple for this guy. I mean, all these temples along the Potomac River, I mean, the Nile River, I don't have a temple for him. Who is Jehovah? That was a declaration of political sovereignty, but also of religious sovereignty. Jehovah may be a god, that's okay. But before he is, or before you worship him, I have to give my permission. I'm not his servant. He is my servant. That was the idea. The gods needed the state more than the state needed the gods. Rulers could change their gods <clears throat> if the gods failed to act favorably. I mean, you see that in, 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 in the ancient world so often. Uh, uh, a military leader goes to, goes to war. He offers sacrifices to his god. He loses the battle, the next, the next thing he does is, you didn't give me victory, I'm switching to another god. In places like Athens or Rome, temples to different gods were built at public expense and by political decision. Okay. You know, the oldest surviving concrete building in the world you ever heard of that the oldest surviving concrete building in the world and in fact it's so huge and it's even unreinforced concrete it has no reinforcement in it the pantheon in Rome what was the pantheon what does pantheon mean all gods that was a place where they would put the statues of all the gods that the Senate approved to be gods and in fact Jesus lost his vote by several votes. Yeah. Tiberius, one of the emperors, when he heard about somebody who died and was resurrected and became a god, immediately as was the law in the Roman Empire, submitted to the Senate for for a vote, a decision, a a bill that Jesus should be made a god and and his statue should be put in the Pantheon. And Jesus lost by a few votes. The Roman Republic, at some point, had disposed of that superstition, the will of the gods. Yeah, the gods were still venerated, sacrificed to, but they were steadily pushed out of the system of political decisions, or even of the public life. In, the last, in its last days, the Roman Republic, and later the Roman Empire, was actually a secular state. But when I say a secular state, it was actually a religious state, with the only difference that its god was the emperor. The name of its first emperor, Divus Augustus. And both mean divine, both Augustus and Divus. <clears throat> the social order at the time was a divine concept. Everybody had to worship the social order. Augustus spoke of uh, Augustus, when he, when he became an emperor, he uh, spoke about his desire to build the ideal constitution for the state. You don't talk about ideal things unless you're talking about something divine, right? He wanted to make the republic safe on its foundations without even mentioning the gods anymore. The pagan religions were now like a, like a department in the state. You know, yeah, we will give those the right to to worship. And in that environment, in that pagan political thought where the government was a God in itself and everybody had to obey the government because there was no God above the government, Paul said, the ruler is a servant of God. If that was not rebellion, I don't know what rebellion is. Paul didn't advocate, Paul didn't mention anything about military insurrection against the Roman state. He didn't have to. He undermined the foundations. He he was not the guy who would go uh, uh, attack a fortress with a musket. What he did is he laid dynamite at its foundations. And it was rebellion and sedition of the highest order. That was a game changer. The state wasn't the center of the culmination of mankind's meaning and purpose anymore. The state wasn't a source of meaning, wasn't a source of worship, was nothing. The state was not even necessary, because if you're speaking about a servant, you're speaking of somebody whom you can dismiss at will. Right? Unless you want to say that the servant has a right in your house, in which case, he's not a servant, he's an owner. But a servant can be dismissed at will. And Paul added even worse words. I mean, to add insult to the injury, he said, he added these two words, three words in Greek, for good, for your good. To the Christians. He was speaking to Christians and he was telling those rebels of the state, to, against the state, against the gods, he was telling them, the government is a servant of God for your good. It was not a meek acceptance and legitimization of the Roman political authority, it did not call for a, for a violent political overthrow of the Roman Empire. But it was not because the order was just in biblical. Paul knew the Old Testament scriptures, and he knew that the stone in Daniel, uh, and I think that is in Daniel 2, the kingdom of Christ that came in the days of the last fourth kingdom would crush all the earthly empires. Amen. That's what it says. Amen. He knew that the kingdom that was coming would crush the empire. There was no ideal constitution for a government. There is no ideal constitution for a servant. A servant is needed, put to work. When you don't need him, go back to your quarters. That's what Paul was speaking about. Perfection was not to be found in the political order, and therefore no worship and no sovereignty in the political order. Paul's political philosophy or something completely new. He was saying, sovereignty is not in the state. Sovereignty is not in any man. Sovereignty is above man, above man's society. And therefore, every individual has the right to appeal to, to that higher sovereignty, higher standard of justice, and what's the logical conclusion from it? And rebel against those who do not appeal to that standard. For another 200 years, Augustus's political philosophy survived. The Roman Empire survived for a while, but it was undermined. In 311 AD, Galerius, the last persecutor of Christians in the Roman Empire, started his edict of toleration, supposedly of Christians, with the following words. Among the other measures that we take, listen to this, for the use and benefit of the state. We have previously desired to correct anything not in accord with the ancient laws and public order of the Romans. So we made provisions that also the Christians who had abandoned the belief of their own ancestors should return to sound opinions. He was persecuting Christians not because he hated their religion. He was persecuting Christians because he wanted obedient slaves for the use and the benefit of the state. Praise God we don't have people like this in Washington, D.C. today, right? Well, he was the last one. He saw his failure. In 313, Constantine declared we decided to give them liberty. He did not mention the state. He did not mention the use and the benefit of the state. In fact, if Constantine did anything, he said the following. We ask we we give them freedom so that all the divine and heavenly powers that exist might be Favorable to us, and for the first time in the history of the Roman Empire, the individuals were acknowledged as a legitimate entity to us, the empire, the state, and all those living under our authority. In his edict, two years later, Constantine, the first Christian ruler of the Roman Empire, acknowledged that every individual has a right to appeal directly to God and not go through the state. He was not consistent in it, but for the first time, we saw it. What happened after that is, step by step, Christians continued to undermine the foundations of the pagan state. The pagan state survived for a while, even under Christian emperors. But in the 4th century, just about a generation after this edict, a bishop of Milan, Ambrose, who was the... Mentor of the great Christian theologian, Augustine. When Emperor Theodosius declared that he was going to come and take his church because Ambrose didn't obey some edict of the emperor. Ambrose said something that was unheard of in the ancient world. It is not lawful for you to come and take it. As an emperor, you can't even enter the house of a private person. First time ever. What makes you think you can enter the house of God? And in fact, Theodosius said, Theodosius actually did barricade himself with his worshipers in the church. And Theodosius backed down. That political revolution was the political revolution that affected the Reformation, and that's why in the Reformation, everywhere in Europe, Protestants were considered a threat to the state. In fact, when Charles V wanted to apprehend Luther and execute him, the problem was with the state. It was not with his religion. In many other places, like in the Netherlands, in Britain, And in in America at the time, in the colonies, the problem was with the fact that Protestants were rebels against the state. Why? Because they believed in higher justice. Now this is what I believe is what we need to restore today in America. As Christians, our duty is to go back to the Bible and remember that we have to have a government that is a minister and servant to God. And any government that is not a servant to God, whether it is central government or local government, does not deserve our loyalty, but in fact deserves our righteous rebellion. And we'll continue tomorrow to see where that leads us. Thank you all.